Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Well, we're going, we don't need Rose. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. No, I am your father. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. Phil, you have two choices tonight. You can either play a game or take a swim. What do you feel like? <laughs> uh, I want to do both, I think. I'm going to uh, dive right in. That sounds good. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> That's very good. I like that. <laughs> Why don't you fill people in then on exactly what I'm referring to and uh, what we're going to be talking about in tonight's episode. Yes. This episode will see us giving after the endings to uh, Deep Blue Sea, the shark one that we all we all secretly love because, you know, it's got sharks in. Intelligent sharks. Uh, I want a parrot. <laughs> right. But first, we will be uh, going after the ending of David Fincher's 1997 film, The Game, which is a, a great movie, which uh, seems to have been forgotten by quite a few people. Yeah, it, it has, actually. I don't, and I don't know why. You know, I, I looked at when I was doing the research for it, it did make, uh, you know, some money. It wasn't a hit by any means, but it did grow something like, I want to say like $60 million or so in the U.S., and this is 1997 dollars, so that's probably yeah. equivalent to what, $80, $90 million hit. Uh, and worldwide, I think it took in like 150 or something, but it was generally regarded kind of as a flop. And like you said, it's it's kind of been forgotten by people. And I think it's a brilliant movie. Yeah, me too. Uh, so I feel like it's kind of our mission to remind people that, hey, there's this really great early David Fincher film out there and, you know, Michael Douglas film. And, you know, it's fantastic. So go watch it. Oh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a brilliant movie. Yeah. We will also be uh, taking a look at our top 10 favorite films from the year 2005. Yep. Some good stuff there. And as usual, we will have a, a mighty morphing mini feature. And as Doctor Strange has unleashed the eye of Agamotto around the world, uh, the mighty morphing mini feature has got a bit of a magical theme to it. Yeah, a lot of fun. Lots of good stuff. Well, this is the part of the podcast where I tell people that if you haven't seen the game, uh, pause this podcast and go watch it because we're about to jump into doing the after the ending of it. And it, we are going to, as I have said in the past, spoil the crap out of yeah. it. So uh, this is a movie you really want to watch without having spoiled it or without having had it spoiled because it's a lot of fun. It has some real great twists and turns. Yeah. So if you haven't seen it yet, either fast forward or stop listening until you've watched it and then come back uh, and, and, and have a listen then. Yeah, the less you know about the film, the better. But now we're going to go through what happens in the film. Okay, so Phil, take it away. Tell us about The Game. Okay, The Game. Uh, Nicholas Van Orton, played by Michael Douglas. He's a very rich investment banker. They have a few of them in certain films, and I never quite know what exactly they do, but they're always <laughs> loaded. have great houses, great clothes. Michael Douglas is well-suited for the role. Yes. He's about to celebrate his 48th birthday, but he's, he's not very happy about it. He's... Uh, He's miserable, he doesn't get on well with people, he's angry. And the re main reason for this is because his father committed suicide when he reached the age of 48. So it's uh, it's hitting him hard. But his younger brother, Conrad, played by Sean Penn, turns up and has got him a voucher for a game uh, by a company called Consumer Recreation Services, henceforth known as CRS. Conrad says it will change his life. Nicholas thinks it's a bit of a waste of time, but he goes to c the CRS offices and when he's there, he undergoes a lengthy series of psychological and physical examinations, only to be told that his application is rejected. He's not happy about that. You know, he's, he's wasted a whole day, and it looks like the, the present was uh, a waste of time. However, after his meeting at CRS, things begin falling apart for Nicholas. Uh, he gets the police involved, 
uh, to investigate the CRS company. But when they go to take a look at it, the officers have been abandoned. So it's all a bit confusing. He doesn't know what's going on. Uh, but while he's uh, getting something to eat, he meets a waitress called Christine, played by Deborah Cara Unger, who says she's being threatened by CRS. However, it turns out she's actually working for them. And as it goes on, Nicholas finds out that pe people he talks to are all part of this game. Uh, Conrad ends up calling Nicholas as well and says that CRS has taken all of Nicholas's money and that things are bad. It goes from bad to worse, with Nicholas being chased by troops from CRS. And he ends up getting captured, put in a coffin, and he wakes up in Mexico. Ends up making his way back to the US, only to find that his house has been foreclosed, his all, and all his belongings are gone. Uh, but while he's looking through the house, he gets a gun that he kept stashed away and puts on the TV. And while he's watching the TV, he sees a guy he spoke to at CRS at the initial uh, meeting is actually an actor on an advert. He tracks him down and gets this actor to force him to take him to the real CRS HQ. When he's there, he ends up taking Christine hostage and demands to speak to the big boss. Uh, Nicholas ends up taking Christine up to the roof and bars the door and people start banging on the door trying to get through. Christine panics when she realises that the gun is a real gun and not one of the props. And she ends up telling Nicholas that everything's been a hoax and his, all his money, which he thought had been taken away, is all still there. And his family and friends are all waiting downstairs for his birthday party. The banging on the door keeps banging away, bang, bang, bang. The door opens and Nicholas shoots the first person who walks out, only to see that it's his brother Conrad, who was holding a bottle of champagne, ready to celebrate his birthday. Absolutely distraught, Nicholas walks to the roof, the, the side of the roof, and leaps off just as his father did. But he lands crashing through a glass roof, there below and lands on a giant airbag in a ballroom full of his friends and family and all the people he met during the game. He's obviously a bit confused, especially when Conrad walks in and is fine and tells him that he arranged the game so that Nicholas would end up appreciating life and not end up like, his, uh, like their dad did. Nicholas breaks down and ends up enjoying the party and splits the bill with Conrad because he finds out it was uh, an obscene amount of money. Uh, he asks Christine out for dinner, but she says it'll just have to be coffee as she is off to Australia for the next game. And that's the game. Very nicely done. That's a lot to sum up in a short period of time. Yeah, as well. I've skipped quite, I've skipped quite a few things, but... I think I think you got I all the important stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting, though, as I was listening to you talk about it, though, you know, we, we, we've we talked about how, you know, we both love this movie, but doing the endings for it was challenging because it's not really the type of film that either needs or wants a sequel, per se. You know, it yeah, doesn't really... Yeah necessarily have a natural place to go but you know what i was thinking it does it, what it could use is a prequel oh yeah because i want to know how did conrad find out about this game and how does he know it's going to change nicholas's life did he go through it himself i think he mentions he does he done it ah okay i'm sure yeah that's that rings a bell but yeah it'd be good to see you could do a prequel yeah that would be a cool story you know because uh, i i just like i'm just fascinated with the uh the organization right right how, exactly. how they would organize all that and do all this stuff yeah because you could do it to a lesser, uh, a certain extent, and I think like uh, over here, I'm not sure if you get him over over there, but Darren Brown, he's like a magician, mind reader kind of guy, uh -huh. but he, he basically reads people really well, and and he can predict what they're going to do. So it's the games like that, but to like the nth degree. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. But uh, no, I really like the film. But what uh, what do you see happening the day after the game ends? Okay, well, Christine and Nicholas go out for coffee. They find that they enjoy each other's company, even when they're not on the run or being part of a conspiracy. When Christine comes back from her trip to her next job, Nicholas pursues her and they begin dating. She travels a lot for work for CRS, but Nicholas uses the times while she's away to improve his life. He reconciles with Conrad and begins to develop a brotherly relationship with him. He also reconciles with his ex-wife, not so much so that they want to rekindle their relationship, but enough so that they're civil. 
He apologizes for how he treated her and how he took her for granted, and he also fixes his alimony agreement, which he had originally used his expensive, high-powered lawyers to rig so that he effectively paid nothing. Now he pays her a normal sum every month, and the two repair their relationship to be cordial and almost even friends. And thus ends my most mundane day after <laughs> ever, I think. So, <laughs> I, th- I think I think mine's much the same as well. But it's sort of it is it does fit in with what's uh, what happens at the end of the film, right? Right. Well, mine gets more interesting. So uh, oh, okay. let's uh, let's hear what you got. Okay. Uh, Nicholas wakes up the next morning for the first time in a long time. He feels calm and relaxed. Uh, he hadn't realized how tense and miserable he'd been over the past few years. After seeing Christine off the night before, he returned to the party. He didn't drink much, but spoke to many of his old friends that he had lost touch with over the last few years. He then spent hours talking with Conrad about their childhood, their father, and the game. Nicholas cannot believe what he went through and how well CRS figured him out. He was thinking about suing them for a while, but realises that the game has saved him. Nicholas, after Chenga's finances are all in order and his house is back to normal, spends the day with Conrad, just chilling out and reminiscing about what turns out to be good old days. And that's my day after. Very nice. Okay, what about your immediate aftermath? All right, well, a couple of years later, Nicholas and Christine, who are now an official couple, are out to dinner with Conrad and his new girlfriend. They're having a nice evening out, although Christine is telling the group that the, the grind of always having to play a new character and always getting involved in potentially dangerous situations is wearing on her. As they're waiting for dessert, a man bursts into the restaurant waving a gun. He zeroes in on Christine, points the gun at her, and yells, You! You did this to me! You and your damned game! You ruined my life! And he opens fire. Nicholas throws Christine to the ground as they are narrowly missed by the hailstorm of bullets. Conrad yells, Go! Go! and lunges at the attacker. Nicholas and Christine run out of the restaurant hand in hand and into the streets of New York. Who the hell is that? Nicholas asks. You remember the trip I took to London, she says, how I told you things didn't go so well? I think maybe they went worse than I thought. Just then, the man bursts out of the restaurant behind them and starts shooting at them again. They start to run, and the man gives chase. And that's our cliffhanger moment of the moment. So, Mm. yeah. All right. So uh, how about your immediate aftermath then? Okay. Uh, Nicholas has never felt better. His company's gone from strength to strength, and he is a kinder, warmer boss, friend, and brother. He goes out more, spends quality time with other people, and does a lot more for charity and the local community. Conrad has also turned a corner and has started working with Nicholas. Uh, Nicholas has also kept in touch with Christine, and whenever she returns to the US, they meet up, and her romance slowly grows. They talk about the game, and she tells him about what she is up to with the various other games that she is uh, working on. He is fascinated with the whole process and the psychological techniques that, that they use. He asks if he can be involved in CRS in some way, and meetings are made, and a mutual relationship is built between Nick and CRS. He helps with their investments, and he gains access to their psychological and physical exam techniques and how they and how they interpret all the information they gather. And that's my immediate aftermath. Hmm, interesting. I'm curious to see where that's going. Thank you very much. I want to see what happens now after they're on the run from the gunman. What happens next in your long term? All right, well, Nicholas and Christine run through the streets. They start to get ahead of the man and are almost able to lose him when they turn a corner and find themselves up against a mob of people. There's a film shoot going on up ahead, and the road is closed off, and the crowd of people standing there watching is blocking their egress. Unable to move forward, Nicholas and Christine turn back, but as they run her back around the corner, they see the man with the gun is almost upon them. Nicholas grabs Christine's hand and pulls her into the only open door they can reach, the lobby of an office building. As they approach the security desk, Nicholas tries to explain to the security guard what's happening, but he's out of breath. The guard tells them to just calm down, but a shot rings out, and the guard goes down with a huge bullet hole in his chest. Nicholas and Christine manage to get into an elevator just as the doors are closing. 
They make it to the top floor and look for a place to hide, but the floor is empty and unoccupied, and there's almost literally nowhere for them to run. There's a pair of doors at the far end of the floor, and they run to them, but when they get there, they find they're locked and they can't break them open. The man advances on them, reloads his gun, and draws down on Christine. As he fires his gun, Nicholas yells, No! and jumps in front of her, taking the bullet meant for her. She screams, and the impact of the bullet throws Nicholas back into her, causing them to smash through the doors and into an open room. Stunned, Christine is helped up by a pair of CRS technicians, and she realizes that Nicholas is alive and unharmed. She looks up and sees a giant banner on the wall that says, Christine, will you marry me? (laughs) She looks at grinning Nicholas and realizes he set the whole thing up. Conrad, his girlfriend, Jim Feingold from CRS, the security guard who had just gotten shot, all of her friends and several members of her family are all present, and they're clapping and cheering. Jim Feingold approaches her and says, still want to quit? And she replies, more than ever. Then she turns to Nicholas, nods yes, and the two of them kiss passionately as the crowd cheers them on. And that's my after the ending. Oh, nice. I like it. My romantic side came out there a little bit. Yeah, God, if you did work for CRS, you'd just be tense all the time. Uh, Right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) That can't be an easy life. God, no. All right, well, uh, how about let's let's see how yours wraps up then. Give us your long term, Phil. Okay, so in my long term, uh, Nicholas's company begins using the CRS assessment techniques on his staff to make sure they are in the best positions and how they can have a better time at work while being more productive. His company ends up being renowned as the best company to work for in the United States. And as he's making money hand over fist, he ends up buying CRS. His romance with Christine grows and grows and they are married and end up having two children. Conrad was best man at the wedding. Nicholas realises he's done everything he can in the business world and wants a new challenge, so he decides to run for president. That's how it ends. <laughs> I like it. The biggest game of all That's right. politics. And and as we know also, he, he wins the election because then he starred in The American President. Yeah, yes, very true. a movie that I love. So, yes. uh, you know, he might have just changed that. his name for that. But, you know, I, I can see yeah. it. And I, he's using all these, you know, the CRS things. He can That's analyze right. everything. Oh, yeah, he analyzed all the voters and he probably, yeah. like, won by a landslide. Yeah, there very you cool. Go. I like it. Excellent. Thank you. Nicely yeah, done. Yeah, I, I was trying to, I was going to, I was toying with the idea of having it all turn into a game again, but I, I couldn't think of one which would do it justice after the film. Right. But I, like, I like what you did. That was brilliant having that as the way you'd uh, turn it around on Christine. I didn't think of that. Thanks. You know, yeah, I, um, I, you know, I didn't want to put him through it again. I like yeah, the idea yeah. of him doing it to her. And then once yeah. I, I, you know, I kind of caught on to the idea of a, a wedding proposal, I thought, well, that's a fun way for him to, you know, yeah, marriage proposal for him to do that is to do it, you know, through the game and kind of. So. Yeah, and you couldn't really have any comeback on him because, you know, she put him through it all as well. So Exactly, yeah. exactly. All right, great. Well, the, so those were our endings for the game. Phil, why don't you tell us about the trivia game? Okay. Uh, David Fincher said that there were three main influences on the film, and this is what he said. Uh, Nicholas was a fashionable, good-looking Scrooge, hmm. led into a Mission Impossible situation with a steroid shot in the thigh from the sting. <laughs> I like it. That. I like, yeah. Yep. Uh, Jodie Foster was originally down to play Nicholas's sibling, but she didn't want it to be a sister. She wanted the role to be changed to Douglas's daughter. Uh, but Michael Douglas and David Fincher didn't really want to go with that. There was uh, an 18 years age gap between the two, but uh, obviously that didn't happen and Jodie Foster dropped out. Hmm. Uh, the role was therefore changed to a brother, and Jeff Bridges was offered the role, but he didn't take it, and then Sean Penn was the one who got the role. Right. Uh, John- Jonathan Mostow, the director of Surrogates and Terminator 3, he was originally going to direct the film back in 1993, wow. uh, four years before this. Right. And uh, in that one, it was going to be Cal McLachlan playing Nicholas, and Bridget Fonda was going to be Christine. 
the waitress. Interesting. Uh, yeah, and at the end, when the paramedic gets Nicholas off the big airbag, it's uh, Spike Jones, uh-huh. who's playing the paramedic, who shines the light in Nicholas's eyes after the fall. And the scene where Nicholas wakes up, I like this one, the scene where Nicholas wakes up in the Mexican crypt is a nod to Sam Peckinpah's 1974 film, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Uh-huh. And in that, the main character, Benny, is buried alive and has to climb out. And Nicholas, in the game, is wearing the same suit as Benny was in that film. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, some nice little nice little things about that. I like it. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, it's not a surprise. I mean, David Fincher is an amazing director. He's one of my absolute favorites. And, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. I know there's a lot of other talent involved, you know, before it got started. But I do think that I that David Fincher probably d- delivered, I think, the best possible version of this movie that, you know, we could have gotten. Mm. And Michael Douglas is one of my favorite actors. So, you know, I, I think this film is pretty pretty perfect as it is. I think uh, Michael Douglas was, was brilliant as Nicholas. It was perfect. Yeah. Perfect for the role. But that is the game. If you haven't seen it and we haven't spoiled it too much for you, uh, check it out. Even if we have, go watch it. It still holds up even if you know it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah, because it's it's great just watching the twists and turns. And, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, then, why don't we move on to Deep Blue Sea? Yeah, bring on the sharks. Yes. All right. Well, Deep Blue Sea. So uh, it's a it's a it's a morose melodrama starring Tom Hiddleston. Oh wait, sorry. That's that's <laughs> oh yeah. That's yeah. the 2015 Deep Blue Sea. Very different different. Movie. I was so disappointed with that. I thought it was going to be a remake. <laughs> right. Uh, no, actually, Deep Blue Sea, 1999 film directed by Rennie Harlan, uh, starring Saffron Burroughs, Samuel L. Jackson, Thomas Jane, LL Cool J, Michael Rappaport, and Stellan Skarsgård. It's a really good cast, actually. Yeah, it is. It is. It's a good yeah. cast, good film. Uh, just, It's so much fun to watch. Yeah. All right, well, here's what happens. At an ocean research facility called Aquatica, we meet Dr. Susan McAllister, played by Saffron Burroughs, who has genetically engineered three mako sharks by increasing their intelligence in an effort to find a cure for Alzheimer's disease. We also meet Carter Blake, played by Thomas Jane, who's a, a shark wrangler, if you will. He's so cool. He is so cool, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and we meet the cook, Preacher. Um, so he's, he's not a preacher. He's a cook. Make that clear. Even though he's named Preacher, yeah. I don't know why yeah. they don't call him Cook, but he's the, he's the cook. So uh, and that would be one LL Cool J playing that role. After one of the sharks escapes and attacks a boat full of teenagers, corporate money man Russell Franklin, played by Samuel L. Jackson, flies out to inspect the facility. While trying to extract fluid from one of the sharks, Dr. Jim Whitlock, played by Stellan Skarsgård, gets his arm bitten off. They call a helicopter to take him to a hospital, and he is airlifted out in the middle of a hurricane because killer sharks isn't enough to deal with, so <laughs> yeah. you've got to have it all happen during a hurricane. Yeah. What else what can we throw at them to make it even worse? Right, exactly. So the, the cable jams on the uh, gurney that Dr. Whitlock has been strapped to with his helicopter as they're trying to airlift him out in the middle of this hurricane, and Dr. Whitlock falls into the shark pen filled with super smart sharks. One of the sharks grabs the gurney that Dr. Whitlock is on and pulls the helicopter into the control tower, and they both explode. Then one of the sharks smashes Dr. Whitlock on the gurney through the observation window, in one of my favorite character death yeah. scenes of any movie of all time. Uh-huh. I, know. I, know. It's, I remember watching it the first time going, oh, just, it can't get any worse for this guy. And then it just, it just <laughs> right. kept getting worse. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's so brutal, too, he's, because he's got the air mask, the ventilator on, so he's still yeah. breathing. And you can see that he's awake. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, which yeah. makes me sound like a terrible person, but... It's, oh, I love it's it. great. I so love it. we'll be terrible together. That's right. <laughs> so they smash him through the window and the entire facility floods. While they're trying to escape, several of the members of the team are killed, uh, including Samuel Jackson, one of the other greatest on-screen deaths of all time. 
Uh, oh yeah, and uh, go check it on YouTube if you haven't oh, seen God, it. It's, it's worth seeing. It's so yeah. good, even out of context of the film. Yeah, it's worth but watching. I think it works better if you watch the whole film. But it, it, even out of context, like you said, it's still pretty yeah. great. Uh, man, they manage to take out two of the sharks, and eventually it comes down to just Doctor McAllister, Preacher, and Carter. With the last remaining shark trying to escape to the open sea, Doctor McAllister sacrifices herself by trying to distract the shark, and it eats her. Uh, which so her plan wasn't all that great. Uh, <laughs> Carter ends up on the shark's back, and Preacher shoots the shark with a harpoon, but he spears Carter to the shark at the same time. <laughs> um, Carter gets free just in time as Preacher attaches the harpoon's metal cable to a power source and blows the shark up just as it's escaping into the open sea. And the film ends with Carter and Preacher on the sinking facility as construction crews' boats make their way in to hopefully rescue them. And that is Deep Blue Sea. Yes, very nicely done. Thank you. So, uh, Phil, well, I'm anxious to hear what you got going here, so give us your day after. Okay. Carter and Preacher are picked up and taken to safety. After being treated for the wounds and the shock that that set in after the events on Aquatica, they are debriefed by lawyers and the Coast Guard about what happened. They then spend the rest of the day drinking, sleeping and contemplating what happened to Aquatica. And they also drink quite a bit because they've had a hell of a day. Yeah. And that's my that's my day after. All right. So, okay, so what have you got for your day after? All right, well, um, mine starts off similar to yours, but then it takes a bit of a turn, uh, I think, so... Okay. My endings are a little long for this one. I, I was having fun, so there, oh, bear stuff. with me. <laughs> so Carter and Preacher are rescued and taken to the nearest hospital. They are treated for their injuries and spend several days recuperating. With all evidence of the experiments on the sharks destroyed, the authorities don't believe that there were super smart sharks, and they chalk up the destruction to the hurricane and the helicopter explosion, weakening the structure of Aquatica. As neither Preacher nor Carter are either scientists or high-ranking personnel, their stories are simply ignored. Meanwhile, as the next few weeks and months go by, Carter has started to put together a frightening picture based on news reports from around the world, all of which are aquatically based, and they escalate as time goes on. A massive ice shelf collapses from a glacier in the Arctic that was considered extremely stable. A series of dams collapse on the Columbia River near the Pacific Ocean. An oceanographic research facility on the coast of Florida that is on the verge of making a breakthrough in climate control is destroyed by a mysterious tidal wave. Carter realizes that all of these events together are working towards an end goal, raising the Earth's temperature and the world's sea levels. The sharks are trying to flood the world and turn the entire planet into a water-covered Earth. Oh, very good. And that's my day after. Oh, yeah. Good God, they are clever sharks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I like it. I Thank like you. It. All right, so what do you have for your immediate aftermath? Okay, after weeks of waiting, Carter and Preacher are found not guilty of any wrongdoing. It's a relief to them as they felt the destruction of Aquatica was going to be pinned on them. However, they end up being offered new positions at Aquatica 2. It turns out the company had been copying the research data every day when it was backed up on the computer and had different labs replicating the work. A cure for Alzheimer's is, uh, is worth a lot of money. And now the fact that these super smart sharks can also be used as weapons is another uh, you know bonus for the company. They've also used Carter and Preacher's testimony to ensure that the events of Aquatica will never, ever, ever happen again. <laughs> right. What could go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> Having nowhere else to go, Carter, well, I mean, where's a shark wrangler going to go? I mean, looking for work. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't it's, really uh, seem like the type of job with a lot of opportunities. Yeah. Uh, Carter and Preacher take the job and head to Aquatica 2. Turns out it's a, a lab built on an atoll within the Marshall Islands in the Pacific. It's about 100 kilometers from Bikini Atoll. Intelligent sharks and radiation. What the hell was I thinking? <laughs> Says Carter to Preacher. <laughs> and uh, 
as you said, what the hell can go wrong? Right, right, exactly. Uh, that's my immediate aftermath. All right, I like it. I like it. I like a lot. I like where it's going. So you'll have to see what happens next. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure it will just end with them retiring gracefully after an uneventful life. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> What's going to happen then with your immediate aftermath? All right, well, Carter tracks down a lab assistant who worked at Aquatica in the early days and finds out that one of the earliest shark test subjects, one that was believed to be unsuccessful, escaped from the facility in the infancy of the program. Since the scientists didn't believe the process had worked on this shark, they swept it under the rug when they couldn't recapture it. Carter realizes that the shark must have reproduced and that there are now multiple super smart sharks out in the wild trying to bring about the end of dry land. Carter appeals to the authorities, but his claims are met with skepticism and flat-out ridicule. Knowing he has to take matters into his own hands, he enlists Preacher to his cause, and they travel around the world to recruit a team of experts who've all dealt with animals that were beyond the norms of nature— and have also all dealt with skepticism from the authorities to help hunt the sharks. Ah. On Amity Island, they enlist Police Chief Martin Brody to their cause. <laughs> In Lake Placid, Maine, they recruit fish and game officer Jack Wells. They also bring on board Delbert McClintock, a pest control specialist who recently suffered from a bout of arachnophobia. <laughs> oh, great. Yeah. They, recruit, uh, they recruit Terry Flores, a young woman who fought a giant anaconda in the Amazon. And they also recruit John Henry Patterson V, a big game hunter whose great-great-great-great-grandfather fought a pair of lions known as the Ghost and the Darkness at the oh, turn of awesome. the century. Uh, bringing Michael Douglas back in as well. That's right, a little uh, Michael Douglas tie-in there. So. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Oh, I like that. Thank you. And uh, and that's where we'll leave it for now. Brilliant. Oh, what a team. Yeah, right? I, for I forgot about the arachnophobia one, yeah? Yeah, I thought that would be fun to throw that in there. I like that movie. Yeah, me too. Brilliant. All right, well, let's uh, let's see what you got. Then I want to see how this all plays out, you know, boring and peacefully for these two guys where nothing could go wrong. So yeah. so give us your long term. Yeah, intelligent sharks and radiation. Okay, my long term. My long term. Carter Preacher and two other survivors of the past 48 hours look at what remains of Aquatica 2 as it ends up blowing up and sinking into the sea. <laughs> Just skip right to the good part, yeah, huh? Yeah. <laughs> they can't believe that the sharks did it again. <laughs> this time they were unable to kill all of the sharks as three of them escaped. Much larger and a lot more intelligent, the humans realize that hunting down the sharks is their top priority. The survivors wave as they see helicopters from the company's new owners, the Wayland Corporation, approach. <laughs> the hunter's on. <laughs> and that's, that's my long term. I like it. So one could say that uh, the the Wayland influence of bad decision making goes back yeah, centuries. Yeah. It goes on a long, long time. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I just I just thought I'd just cut to the uh, the cut aftermath the of everything going to hell. Yeah, no, I like it. I like it. <laughs> so are the are the super smart sharks? Are they in any way descendants of the aliens? Then, or are is it unrelated? And just it's just that Wayland, you know, well, is who, just a, who a knows what, what the Wayland Corporation would do with the sharks, super sharks, right? You can't say it. Super smart shark DNA. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe when they enter, you know, in a few years down the line, the Utani Utani people will uh, will do something as well. Right, right. When they team up, it's bad news. Yeah. All right, I like it. Very good. Thank you very much. So what's, uh, what then happens with your long term and the uh, the group of animal hunters? All right. Well, Carter and his team set out to destroy the sharks. They keep an eye out for any news related to the ocean and the climate. And when a research vessel is attacked in the open seas, they race out to join the fray. They arrive too late to catch the sharks, however, and the pattern begins to repeat itself. They hear about an attack, they race out to help, and they get there after the sharks have already left. Eventually, Patterson comes to the group and says, I think I know what to do. He shows the group the research he's been doing, plotting out a giant map of all the attacks, as well as the directions the sharks have come in from and which way they left the scenes of each attack. 
He tells the group that he's calculated where the sharks are living, a low-depth trench in the Atlantic Ocean. The group loads up for a battle and heads to that area. Before they can even drop bait for the sharks, the sharks attack the boat. A pitched battle ensues, and everyone on the team is severely injured. Just as it looks like the entire boat is about to go down, Patterson sacrifices himself to save them. He jumps in a dinghy and uses an experimental shark-attracting sonar device to lead the sharks away from the boat. As they swarm on him, he ignites an explosive that kills all the sharks. Is that all of them? Preacher asks. Did we get them all? It has to be, Carter says, beaten and bloodied. The group returns to land, and they agree to remain vigilant for any indications that any of the sharks have survived. Should their services be needed again, they'll be ready. Oh, very nice. I like that. Thank you. And, wait. Oh. I have an after-the-credits scene. Oh, God. <laughs> what happens? So, credits what roll. What did they forget? Yes, credits roll. 400 years later, a man wakes up on his boat. <sighs> he stretches, then sets about his tasks for the day. It's a day like any other. Oh, brilliant. Little does the mariner know that a little girl named Enola with a map tattooed on her back is about to change his whole world. Oh, brilliant. It fits in. It works. Right? Yeah, it works. I thought so. I figured, you know, it's the shark's mission is to get the, you know, is to turn things into a water world. And so yeah, even though it, even though at the end of my movie, it seems like we've won the day. In the long term. In the long term, the sharks have won. Wow. Water right. world. We right. should do an, uh, an after the end of that. No, I really like you after the end of a deep blue sea. Thanks. Thanks. Likewise. Yeah, it worked well. Very good. So, Phil, why don't you share some deep blue trivia with us? Okay. Deep blue trivia. I said, what about breakfast at Tiff? Oh, that's that's deep blue something else. Oh, Remember yeah. Deep... Sorry. <laughs> oh, dear God. Sorry, terrible. <laughs> uh, the license plate pulled from the shark's teeth at the start of the film was the same plate that they found in the tiger shark in Jaws. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, nice little nod to that's that. That's a fun tribute. Uh, the mini sub in the wet entry area of Aquatica was the same one seen in the film Sphere, which also stars Sam Jackson. Right, right, cool. Yeah, uh, the seaplane used in Deep Blue Sea was the same one that was used in Six Days, Seven Nights. Wow, this is like the film that just recycled everything, huh? Yeah, let's say, what props have we got? Yeah, we'll <laughs> right, use this one, right. yeah. <laughs> uh, another nod to Jaws is the fact that the three sharks in the Deep Blue Sea are killed in the same way as the three sharks in Jaws, Jaws 2 and Jaws 3D. Blown up, electrocuted, and incinerated. Ah, very cool. Uh, killing, Samuel, killing Samuel L. Jackson off was inspired by Tom Skerritt's character of Dallas and Alien, both uh, natural leaders played by well-known actors, uh, which made their deaths all the more shocking and unexpected. Right. And this is quite a well-known one, but Saffron Burroughs was meant to be the hero of the film. However, after the first cut, they realized she was more the evil genius, so they re-edited it a bit more to emphasize that, and the rest is history. Yeah, it's one of the things I like about the film, actually, you know, that it, yeah. it does play a little fast and loose. First of all, it, it's a surprise as to who lives and who dies because Samuel Jackson, his death was a surprise. And yeah, he all, sets up as like the big, he's going to save the day, isn't right. he? Right, yeah. And then Saffron Burroughs, who is, you know, I mean, she's kind of the final girl like you expect typically. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, she's kind of the scientist behind it all. And you sort of, you know, you expect her to be kind of the last woman standing. You kind of expect, oh, it's her and Thomas Jane. We know they're going to be the ones who live. And then, you know, then she she dies. And the first time you're watching it, you're like, wow, that's, that's a big surprise. I didn't expect that because yep. it's so, so typical for that character to live, you know. So Well, originally she was going to survive and it was going to be LL Cool J was going to die. So it was going to be her and Thomas Jane. Right. That's, that's what I mean. That's how those, yeah. those movies are almost always structured. So yeah. when they changed that, I think it was really, you know, it was, it was a really good fit for the film. And it's part of what makes it so much fun is that it doesn't just do what you expect it to do every step of the way, you know. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So very And it's cool. a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, it's a great movie. I, it's, I love it's, it. It's cheesy and corny in places, but it's just, uh, you just, yeah. Yeah, you can't help watch. but watch it with a big grin on your face. The yeah, whole time, yeah, exactly, you know? exactly. So, 
All right, great. Well, those are our endings then for the game and Deep Blue Sea. Hopefully you have enjoyed them. But for now, let's move on to our Mighty Morphing mini feature for this week. Dun, 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 dun. By the hoary host of Hoggoth or however. No, that, yeah, that's Doctor Strange's on. little catchphrase, if you will. Yes. <laughs> I'm at 29%, but I, I don't want to I don't want to change yeah, it. My computer risk. gets down to like 4 or 5%. Sometimes it'll just shut off on me yeah, instead yeah. of warning me. Yeah, my, my laptop, it says it's like 20%, and sometimes then it just goes off. Yeah, yeah right. That's not so crazy. Good. Okay, Phil, so why don't you tell people what uh, what this week's mini feature is called? I can't wait I can't wait to hear this. Okay, it's uh, what do you mean? It's a nice simple one. It's the Mighty Mystical Magical Mystery Magicians of Movies. There you go. Yeah, simple. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. make sure you say that every time. I will say Mighty Mystical Magical Mystery Magicians of Movies anytime you want. <laughs> All right, that sounds good. So we we'll uh, just add them to the T-shirts we can make. Oh yeah, right. Add yeah. it right to the list. Of yeah, you've got to get extra large every time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll have that on the front and crazy corporate climax of cacophony of cacophony. crazy corporate classic casting cartel of crazy climaxes. What's so difficult about that? That one. Yeah, we'll have that on the back. Exactly. Oh, well, why don't you tell people what Magical Mystery Tour or whatever we're calling it is, is all about? <laughs> okay. The Mighty Mystical Magical Mystery Magicians of Movies, uh, because Doctor Strange is just, uh, it's been out in the UK for the past week and it's hitting the States and everywhere else. So we just thought we'd look at uh, some of our, couple of our favorite magic users, magicians, wizards, what have you, which is, you know, I think it's summed it up by magic users really, but a couple of our favorite ones from from films. Indeed. Because there's been quite a few of them. Yeah, no shortage of, of magic slash magical characters in movies over the years. Yeah. Yeah. So do you want to sure. crack on? Do you want to pick, go with one of yours first? All right. Well, my first choice is the magician known as Eisenheim from the 2006 film The Illusionist, directed by Neil Berger and starring Edward Norton as Eisenheim. Mm. And, yeah. uh, you know, this is a movie that came out right around the same time as The Prestige, which was Christopher Nolan's um, magic film. And yeah, yeah. Uh, I think The Prestige overshadowed it in terms of attention. The Illusionist oh, didn't, definitely, didn't yeah. get as much attention. I actually like The Illusionist better. Uh, the Illusionist is basically kind of a... Um, it's like a, a love story, a magician, and kind of a Romeo and Juliet story. He's in love with a girl, but she's engaged yeah. to the, the evil prince. And, uh, you know, it's it's a lot more um, – it's not like a fairy tale. It's a lot more grounded in, in, like, the real world. But he uses this magic and illusion to sort of save the day eventually. And while I am doing a terrible job of describing this movie no, – I, I really enjoyed it. It's a good it, film. Yes. Yes, it is. It, it's, uh, it was Neil Berger's first film who went on to do Limitless, a film I really enjoy and has made some other good films. And uh, it's a really stylized film. Edward Norton is terrific in it. I really enjoyed his character. He's kind of cocky. He sort of suffers for his actions a little bit. But then he uses his intelligence and his illusions to sort of save everything at the end. And it's it's a great yeah. film and I really enjoyed his character in it. So that is my, my first magical mystery magician type character excellent okay well for my first uh magic user i'm going back to 1989 uh with a film called warlock mm. directed by steve minor who also directed the second and third friday the 13th films halloween h2o 20 years later and lake placid which you mentioned in your after the ending yeah he's actually a really good kind of like workman genre director yeah you yeah know? i've actually liked a lot of his films yeah but it was also it was written by david tui who did uh the riddick movies but it's uh, stars Julian Sands and Richard E. Grant, and Julian Sands is the magic user. He's the warlock of the title, and it starts off in in like uh, sixteen, whatever sixteen hundreds, and he's being chased by witch hunter played by Richard E. Grant. He gets put to death 
well, he's sentenced to death, and just before he gets killed, the warlock opens a time portal, jumps through, and uh, the witch hunters pull through as well, and they end up in 20th century LA. It's one of those films which was quite popular back then where people from medieval times or whatever it is end up coming back to modern day and things happen. But in this one, the warlock, he's a real evil, vicious guy. He skins people, he does all this. He's trying to put together this magical satanic book so he can become all-powerful. Uh, it's it's quite funny, though, with Richard E. Grant being the fish out of water in modern day. And Rick Julian Sands is just uh, evil and twisted. I think he does something dreadful to I think he skins a kid or something in it as well. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. I remember enjoying watching it as a kid, mainly because it was, you know, you're seeing the evil that a magic user can do. And uh, they did it quite well. It's not going to win any awards, but it was an enjoyable one. Sure, yeah. Okay, then, so what? Uh, what's your next magic user? Well, my second choice is the title character of The Illusionist. Not the same Illusionist, however, <laughs> that I just talked about five minutes ago. Yeah, yeah. This yeah. would be the 2010 film called The Illusionist, um, which is an animated film. It's nearly silent. There's very little actual dialogue in it. And um, it's a French animated movie about... It takes place in the 1950s, and it's about this magician, this sort of, you know performing magician and he uh, is sort of on the wrong end of the century where you know new attractions are taking the place of things like these kind of vaudevillian magic acts so he ends up in Scotland kind of going from cafe to cafe and dive to dive and, and kind of scraping by and then he meets a young girl and she believes that magic is real and so he doesn't want to disappoint her so he uses his meager earnings to buy her gifts but present them to her as if they were created by magic and um, it's just this lovely lovely little bittersweet film um, based in the real world you know he's not an actual magician like like he doesn't do real magic he's just an illusionist yeah, yeah. Um, and it was one of those movies that I kind of watched not knowing a whole lot about it and I, and I sort of fell in love with it it's just this beautiful little movie um, very charming and I thought that you know this character is silent throughout the whole film because it's done in a way where there isn't really dialogue, and yet he's yeah. such a a real, like, living, breathing character, which is doubly impressive considering it was animated and not even a real person playing the part. Um, and it's just a movie that's really stuck with me. And as soon as we talked about doing Magicians, uh, that was one of the movies that popped into my head because it's just a, it's a real treat. I don't think many people have seen it, and uh, I do recommend watching both of The Illusionists, actually. I think either one of them you're going to enjoy quite a bit. So. Yeah, the the animated one. I remember that coming out, but never never saw. It. I I remember seeing the trailers and thought it looked beautiful. Oh, it's I do really like all that good. kind of thing. It's it? really oh, worth watching. To, I'm yeah. gonna have to track that down again and watch that. Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. Oh, great. A good choice. So, what's your uh, what's your other pick then? Okay, mine's another film from the '80s. This one is Willow. I uh, love it. That was on my short list. It almost made yeah. my cut. Yeah, great <laughs> yeah. film. Uh, and it's directed by Ron Howard, produced in the story by from George Lucas, and it's got Warwick Davis as the titular. Willow, and stars Val Kilmer, Joanne Worley, Gene Marsh, and Billy Barty. Yeah, Willow is an Elwin in this fantasy land, and he's uh, he wants to be he's a farmer, but he wants to be uh, uh, a magic user. Uh, and throughout the film, he ends up getting this baby he has to take back to, uh, which will help destroy the evil Bav Morda. And on his journey, he ends up learning how to use magic and become a better person and save the day. Uh, and he's just it's a great character. It's a great film. It's lots of fun. Everybody listens probably seen it, uh, but it's got some some uh, Val Kilmer as Mad Martigan is just one of the great characters in fantasy. Absolutely, he's uh, he's that's my favorite role of his hand down, hands down. Oh yeah, he's yeah, so he's fantastic just, in that role. He's so arrogant but so skilled, and yeah. just where his character grows and the way Willow grows. Yeah, uh, it's it's excellent. I like the magic as well. I like the way the magic isn't 
the be all and end all. It's not that main thing, but it's when it's used, it's used effectively, and it's uh, it changes things. It's it makes a big deal about the magic, right? And that's what that's why it sort of keeps it. You know, it doesn't use it all the time. Yeah, yeah. But it's a it's a great one, yeah. great film. Oh, absolutely. I was obsessed yeah. with that movie when I was younger. Yeah. When it came out, it was like my entire summer was devoted to it, like tracking down every Willow thing I could find. Every magazine article, every a toy. I had I literally somewhere in a box in my house, I literally still have every single Willow action figure still mint in the package. Wow. I kid you oh, not. Oh, God. They weren't really wow. action figures. They were like little like almost like die cast metal. They didn't move or anything. They were terrible figures. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I have every single one of them. It's, <laughs> wow. did, you, did you read any of the books, the sequels? You know, I tried and um, yeah. I really didn't. I couldn't get into them at all. Ah. Uh. Which is a shame. Yeah, because I know they've done them, but I've never. Well, never but even the pro- you know they're written by Chris Claremont, um, oh, who yeah, yeah. is obviously famous for writing the X Men comics, and and Chris Claremont has done one really great thing in his career, and that's write X Men, and everything else he's done that aren't X Men, <laughs> in my opinion, are largely terrible. Um, so I tried reading the those books, and I just didn't care for them. But uh, that's fine because that means that when we do our after the ending for Willow, because I'm sure that's coming, uh, yeah. it means we won't be influenced by anything else. So, uh, well, they're a great choice. I love Willow, and uh, I think he's a great character, and it's a terrific movie. So, very cool. That was our Mighty Mystical Magical Mystery Magicians of Movies. Obviously, there's a lot more. If you want to get in touch on our social media and email, we'll give you the details later on. But let us know your favorite magic users. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, and in fact, we have been promising for a couple of weeks that we wanted to share some uh, previous uh, reader submissions. And I think we have just a couple that we want to mention. So, let's do that real quick. So, yeah, a few episodes ago, we did... uh, we did movie mashups where we came up with stuff like Groundhog Day of the Dead, things like that. But we had a few, uh, a few listeners gave us some suggestions for, for for some, and so we had some by Trey Gwynn, who gave us Premium Rushmore, which I like very much, and The Lion King and I, also excellent. Well, I like that one. Yeah, uh, Paul Robinson uh, gave us uh, oh, because I went to see this is quite uh, after because I saw John Carpenter play live plays music last week uh paul robinson suggested big trouble in little chinatown <laughs> very nice that's a way of making a fun film go dark isn't it yeah it is that's for sure <laughs> oh this one's good uh another one from paul robinson it's a d-a-r-y-l-a confidential you know daryl yes confidential yeah very good uh, and i also said don't tell mom the babysitter's deadpool <laughs> i forgot I about that one, that one. <laughs> yeah I, I could see that one working i really well. i like the idea of like deadpool showing up at like somebody's house wearing like you know, like yeah. like a like a blue plaid, like Dorothy looking dress and like a, a blonde wig, but he still has his mask on, and he's like, "Hi, I'm the babysitter." Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> "Don't tell mom, the babysitter's Deadpool." That's hysterical. And we've got another, uh, we've got a few suggestions from Paul Denigri Denigris. I'm sorry, Paul. I've known you for a while on Facebook, but I don't actually know how to pronounce your your surname. So apologies. But Paul has suggested uh, Sling Blade Runner. Very nice. <laughs> I like that one. Yeah. I hunt replicants. <laughs> yeah, much, yeah. <laughs> we got us a replicant here. We got it. <laughs> Close Encounters of the Third Kind of Wonderful. Nice. That's yeah. a that's a mashup of two completely opposite genres. Yeah. And last one from Paul is Breakfast Club at Tiffany's. Very nice. <laughs> they are some movie mashups. If you want to share some, just uh, drop us a line. Yes. Thank you, everyone, yeah. for submitting. We really enjoyed those. And uh, as, as what we've mentioned before, we love to hear from our audience. So keep them coming, please. Okie doke. All right, then. So let's move on to our 100 years of Hollywood and 100 episodes. This week, we are discussing the year of 2005. So fairly recent in our memories. But Phil, why don't you refresh said memories as to what was happening in the world a scant 11 years ago? Yeah. Yeah, it seems 2005, you say, it doesn't seem that long ago, but it's a lot's happened since. Sure. Uh, there was 
lots of depressing stuff. I'm not going to go into too much of that. But the Prime Minister was Tony Blair. The President was George W. Bush. I suppose that was both quite a bit depressing. But there you go. <laughs> uh, so we had the the Hygens or Higgins probe landed on Titan, which was Saturn's largest moon. Iraq held its first parliamentary election since 1958. Uh, something called YouTube was founded. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I wonder what that is. Yeah. I wonder they got on. I don't know. That doesn't sound like anything that would take off. Yeah, YouTube's ridiculous. Uh, Pope John Paul II died. Watergate's deep throat was finally revealed. He was the FBI Associate Director Mark Felt. Hurricane Katrina hit the US. The trial of Saddam Hussein began. The first human face transplant took place in France. And another second was added to the end of the year 2005. And that was the first time since 1998. And it's all to make something balance out because, you know, the way the, the, Earth's, the Earth spins around, it isn't exactly precise. So they had the, the second to make sure the clock and the calendar all work out. Yes, very important. Otherwise, you know, a thousand years from now, we'll be 12 seconds off and we, we can't have that. So Yeah. Got to think long term. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we, and we lost some... We lost some guns. We lost uh, people who passed away in 2005. Amrish Puri, Johnny Carson, Arthur Miller, Sandra D, Hunter S. Thompson, Dave Allen, John Mills, Edward Heath, James Doohan, Momolan, Rosa Parks, Robert Wise, Pat Morita, George Best, and Richard Pryor. Yes, definitely some, some great ones we were sad to see go. Yeah, so that's uh, 2005, but... Uh, Let's go on to the films. All right. Well, why don't you kick things off, Phil, and give us your number 10. Uh, my number 10 is Sahara, a film directed by Breck Eisner, based on the books by Clive Cussler and starring Matthew McConaughey, Steve Zahn, and Penelope Cruz. It's a big-budget treasure-hunting action-adventure film. Matthew McConaughey's playing a character called... What's he called? Dirk Pitt. Dirk Pitt. Yeah, Dirk Pitt. And I believe there's a series of books. I've not read any of them, but I really enjoyed the film. It's not the best film in the world, but it's a lot of fun. I thought Matthew McConaughey was great in it because he's pretty good in most things. Steve Zahn, I always love. Uh, there's some good set pieces, uh, all obviously in the desert, the Sahara Desert. Good th- but there are some good scenes on uh, speedboats and things like that. But, uh, but it's, if you've not seen it and you're after a bit of fun, a bit of adventure, it's worth checking out. I agree. Good choice. All right. Well, my number 10 is The Protector. Uh, starring Tony Jaa, and it is a uh, an action uh, martial arts action adventure film about a man trying to rescue his pet elephant. Um, mm. Which I guess, uh, as far as plot lines go, doesn't sound like the the most exciting movie in the world, but it's this really fantastic martial arts film. Um, you know, a couple of years later, The Raid got a lot of attention for being this groundbreaking, you know, mer- yeah. action, uh, crazy action movie. And I think The Protector sort of laid some of the groundwork for that. There's this really fantastic sequence in the middle where he basically goes from the ground floor to like the top floor of this like restaurant, and it's he goes up. It's like a it's kind of like a spiral, like that famous museum in New York where there's no stairs. It's just like a big spiral up, you know, as you go all the way around the building. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And basically he goes through like four floors of this spiral fighting bad guys the whole time in one uninterrupted take. And it's just amazing. And uh, the film just has some, um, some some fantastic visuals and some really great fight sequences. It's pretty much nonstop balls-to-the-wall action, you know, from start to finish. And uh, I just think it's a really great, great film that I, I think is – it was a hit, but I think it's a little overlooked uh, in this side of the yeah, world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I've I've seen some of his films, but I can't remember if I've seen that one or not. Uh, it's, it's my favorite of his, for sure. And I think they made a sequel a few years later that was kind of terrible, but the original is really, really good. Good stuff. Okay, well, my number nine is uh, Constantine. Uh, not TV shows, the film based on the uh, the Hellblazer comics. 
backed by Francis Lawrence and starring Keanu Reeves as John Constantine. Also stars Rachel Weisz, Charlotte Booth and Tilda Swinton. Uh, Owen Jimon Hanso. Uh, it's not it's not John Constantine as we know from the comics or the TV show because the TV show is a lot closer to the comics. Uh, but I I've, I quite like the film. I think Keanu Reeves did a good job. I think the way uh, when when he ends up going to hell and you see hell, I love the way that was shown, portrayed. Tilda Swinton as an angel, she was just brilliant casting. She always plays these those androgynous supernatural roles really well. Uh, I just I just like the uh, the feel of it, and it's uh, it stayed with me. So that's why it's my number nine. I think that's a good pick, actually. I know that movie gets a lot of flack from comic book mm-hmm. fans and you know people who think that Keanu Reeves isn't a great actor. But I actually really liked it, too. It was on my list of considerations. Um, and I did yeah. adapt yeah. one of my favorite storylines from the comic books. So, uh, like you said, a very different from, from the comics. But it's, overall, as a film itself, I did enjoy yeah. it quite a bit. So, yeah. good pick. All right, well, my number nine is Walk the Line. And uh, it's a movie that I enjoy quite a bit. Uh, and you can tell that because it made my top ten list, despite the fact that Reese Witherspoon is in it. That's a <laughs> pretty big deal so um i uh you know i just i think that joaquin phoenix is fantastic as johnny cash and uh i was never a big johnny cash fan overall and i'm not gonna lie this movie turned me into a johnny cash fan i really enjoyed seeing the music throughout the film and i I went out and bought some johnny cash cds after seeing it and i really enjoyed them and now i've become a pretty big fan of his so i thought as far as biopics go um it's a good one james mangold is a great writer director he he uh, did copland another one of my favorite movies and um you know, I just think it's a really good film, and I, I can't believe Reese Witherspoon won an Oscar for it. But uh, you know, despite yeah, that, fact, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, I, I don't mind. I don't mind her, but uh, it was yeah, it's a weird pick for the Oscar thing. Yeah, I'm not a really big Reese Witherspoon fan, to be honest with you. And um, I thought she was good in that movie, but I don't think that there's anything about that performance at all that deserves an Oscar, to be honest with you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, my number eight is The Devil's Rejects, which is written and directed by Rob Zombie, and it's a sequel to. House of a Thousand Corpses, which I didn't like, but I was, so I was surprised when I, I watched The Devil's Rejects and I really enjoyed it because you basically it's following some of the characters from the, the first film who are like psychopaths and killers and everything, but you're following them as they're getting hunted down by the police. And it's, uh, I just li- like the way that works. It's just got this gritty dirtiness about it. It's, uh, they're, they're, they're terrible, nasty people, obviously, but I just, I liked the, the way we were with them. And they were getting chased, and you sort of the police were the bad guys. And usually in these films, you know, you you're following the people who are going to be victims as these as these twisted people kill them. But it was it was sort of like a slightly different take on things, and I I like that because I hadn't really seen it before, apart from things like you know Bonnie and Clyde when you you know real world things. But I hadn't seen it where you'd you'd had like slasher movie people suddenly they're the, they're like the the anti heroes as it were, right? And you, and you there you want them to get away almost by the end of it, even though you know they're sick and twisted. And there's some cracking scenes where the tension builds. And it's uh, if you've not seen it, even if you're not a fan of Rob Zombie, and I'm not really a big fan of his films, uh, but this one is uh, is worth checking out. Well, Phil, I think now we know why you turn a lot of people into uh, serial killers in your after the endings because uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm yeah. I'm uh, I'm not really a fan of that movie. I'll be honest. I'm not really a fan of Rob Zombie in general yeah, uh, yeah. as a filmmaker. I will say this though. 
I think the first 15 minutes of that film is like an action masterpiece when they're in that like farmhouse or whatever it is and they're surrounded by police and you know there's Yeah, like, yeah. I yeah. think the tension and the and the filmmaking in that is is brilliant and it's it's what disappoints me the most about Rob Zombie because he generally makes movies that I don't like that are really brutal and sadistic and dark and disgusting. Yeah. But the first 15 minutes of that film is really really well made and I wish that he would take that talent and apply it to things that just weren't so far out of my wheelhouse you know what i mean yeah i think i think you got it spot on because i've i'm not a, as, as i said i'm not a big fan of his other films right they don't sit right with me most of the other ones but this one i don't know why i think it was just it just i was i remember sitting down watching it going oh and then but then by the time it finished i realized i really enjoyed it well that's good that's good that's all right yeah. so uh well my number eight is the most misunderstood movie of 2005 and it is jarhead uh, directed by Sam Mendes and starring Jake Gyllenhaal and Jamie Foxx. And uh, it was a huge flop, and it was largely disliked by people because most people were expecting a war movie slash action movie. And the whole point yeah. of the movie is that it's not about war or action. It's about what happens to soldiers when they are deployed to war and there is no war to fight. Um, and I think it's just this really gripping, really in, intense, but not in a way like that has you on the edge of your seat, but it's just this this fascinating character study of what these soldiers go through. They're all hopped up to go out there and you know fight some battles and don't get to. Uh, I think Gyllenhaal is terrific in it. And uh, I just, I really love that movie. I think I'm the only person I know who loves that movie, but I, I, I don't know. I feel like people just didn't get it but i think it's terrific and i wish it had been a bigger hit yeah I've, i only saw it the once and it was i was with a group of people and it was on tv and it was one of those ones where you went sat down watching the film it was sort of like on in the background and i've never had a chance to sit and watch it properly mm-hmm. but uh, it's, it's really good but i think it does yeah, it does yeah. require a proper viewing because it's like i said it's not a movie where a lot happens you know yeah, and yeah. that's that's sort of the point of it but it does require kind of a different viewing mentality i think than a lot yeah of i think it was sort of Thinking back to the trailers, I think it was sort of mismarketed with the trailers. Yeah, agreed. I think you sort of promised one thing. Right, right. And then you go to see it and it wasn't quite right the same. Yep. Well, no good pick. Okay, my number seven is uh, it's a documentary film by Werner Herzog. It's Grizzly Man. Mm, right. Which chronicles the life and death of Timothy Treadwell, who uh, he was killed and eaten by a grizzly bear. In t- oh, spoiler alert. He <laughs> <were> killed, <laughs> killed and eaten in 2003. But he had loads of video footage and uh, Werner Herzog is was looking through it and talking to his friends and Timothy Treadwell's friends and family to get a picture of this guy who devoted his life to spend so much time in the national parks with these bears. And you can see him getting too close to the bears and one of them eventually uh, got in, but it's a, Herzog does some great documentaries. This is a good one. All right. Well, my number seven is a film called Hostage starring Bruce Willis. And uh, it's a little scene Bruce Willis film. One of the last things I think he did that he starred in as the main star that went to theaters and it promptly exited the theaters. And it is fantastic. I, I, I So many people haven't seen this movie and they really need to. Yeah, I'm not sure I've seen it or not. Which one is it? Go on, you go. So basically he plays a, 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 he's a cop, some sort of special kind of cop or something. I can't remember the exact details, but uh, his family gets taken hostage by kind of like these sort of um, teenage punks who things get a little over their heads. And they, they sort of lock themselves into his house with his kids. And he has to sort of break into his own house, which is very secure, to stop these kids from hurting his own kids and um it's really intense like honestly it's one of those films my description doesn't do it justice but i remember watching it the first time and i was like literally chewing my fingernails to the bone like the entire movie from like start to finish and 
And I remember thinking, like, that was really awesome. And then I was like, well, maybe it was just me. And I played it for some other people, some friends. And everyone who watched it was like, oh, my God, that movie is intense. It's just really, really just a nail biter. And um, Bruce Willis is terrific in it. And it's just it's a shame that it didn't do better because it's really kind of an unsung uh, classic in the genre, in my opinion. Okay, yeah, I've not, no, I've not seen it. Yeah, it's worth checking out, trust me. It's really good. I don't think I've even seen a trailer for it. Yeah, it's really good. It really disappeared quickly. It did make it in the theaters and it didn't last, and I don't know why it was, It was, you know, but it's it's fantastic. Okay, my number six, you've already mentioned it, is Walk the Line. A great biopic about a great songwriter, magician. Magician? <laughs> <laughs> no, that was earlier. Uh, yeah, a great, uh, great musician. Joaquin Phoenix is brilliant in the role. You've already gone over it, so... It's a great biopic. All right. Well, my number six is a movie that's appeared on your list, actually, uh, okay. and it is Sahara, ah, uh, which I'm a, I'm a big fan of. I think it's another underrated, underseen movie that is just a fantastic action-adventure film. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned you haven't read any of the books. I've read every single one of them just oh, about. Good. I think there's. I think I'm a couple behind, but I've been reading Dirk Pitt, I mean, novels there by Clive Cussler uh, since I was a kid, basically, and um, – it's actually there was a movie once before with that character called Raise the Titanic, based on oh, the novel. Oh, of course, yeah, 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 from the nineteen seventies. I used to like that as a kid, uh-huh. but then I remember seeing that. Yeah, that's how long this character's ago. been around. And then it, God. yeah, it's uh, it's a shame because there was this huge legal battle too with Clive Cussler. He sued the movie studios for basically ruining his character, apparently, um, and they sued him back, and it got really ugly. Um, I think Matthew McConaughey's Dirk Pitt is. You know, I think all the characters are a little different from the characters from the books, but yeah. I still love the movie, even though it's it's different. I don't mind it because I think they did a really great job with it, and um, so I don't know that we'll be seeing any more Dirk Pitt movies anytime soon, which is a real shame because I love the character and I love the books. But um, I do think Sahara is one of those really great adventure films that has it's got a very Indiana Jones kind of vibe to it, or it's a, it's a, it's a great mix of humor and action. And like you said, great set pieces. And uh, and if you haven't seen it, check it out. It is a lot of fun. Yeah, because I, I would have liked to have seen more. I thought Matthew Connick. So how? So Clive Custler was certainly over the perform over the film. So yeah, the the it, film yeah. didn't do so well. I don't remember all the details, but I know that he set up a big lawsuit against Disney, and they sued him back, and it went into court, and it, it was tied up for years. I don't even know the outcome of the case. I just know yeah. it got really ugly, and there's very little chance that I think we're going to see another Dirk Pitt film anytime soon at all. Okay. Oh well. And maybe it would be different if the film had made $300 million, but it didn't. So yeah, that's, yeah, you know, very true. Uh, so, yeah, it's unfortunate. Okay, well, my number five is the V for Vendetta film, the adaptation of Alan Moore's uh, and David Lloyd's excellent comic. Uh, so this one's directed by James McTeague and stars Natalie Portman and Hugo Weaving, all about an anarchist freedom fighter. It's fights with, in the near future in England, in Britain, and... V turns up to bring down the government. And as we've just had uh, November the 5th, bonfire night over here, it seems quite fitting that this is on my list. It's uh, I really like the adaptation. I know Alan Moore didn't quite like it, eh. but he don't think he likes any. Alan Moore doesn't like anything. Yeah, he doesn't like any of his things. No. I thought they did a cracking job. Uh, Nat- Natalie Portman as uh, Evie was great. Hugo Weaving, even though he's just wearing the mask the whole time, is stunningly good as V. Yep. As we found out doing Mighty Mystical Magical Mystery Magicians and Movies, it's very hard saying things with the same letter, but he does it. His opening scene with all the Vs is brilliant. Some good set pieces. Uh, You've also got Stephen Rear and John Hurt do cracking work. Right. Well, a very good choice. It did not make my list, but it almost did. It was on my short list, and I do really like that movie, and it just got edged out, but I I do enjoy it quite a bit. Okey-doke. It was replaced, however, by my number five, which is The Ringer. 
starring one Johnny Knoxville and Kevin Hart early in his career, actually. Um, and it is about a guy who it kind of sounds terrible. Who, oh, is this the, the oh yeah, go on. He, he, he fakes being yeah, yeah. mentally handicapped yeah. to compete in the uh, Special Olympics. Controversial. And, and, yes, and um, and then of course things go from there. And you know, I, I gotta say, it is one of the funniest movies I've seen in a long time. My wife and I love that movie. It, it is really funny, and it's done very well. It doesn't treat the people in the film as as the punchlines of the jokes, and it, it makes them real characters. And um, you know, you you develop a real affinity for these characters. And it, even though it's Johnny Knoxville and even though it has a lot of crass humor in it, it's never at their expense, which I think is really yeah, good. Yeah. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's just a really funny movie and it makes me laugh. And there's a really great line about ice cream. Uh, when you watch the film, you'll know it. It's my favorite line of the whole movie, but I can't repeat it here. Um, okay. <laughs> I know it's an unconventional pick. And another movie that didn't get seen very much. But, man, I'm telling you, it is it is way funnier than you expect it to be. So, take, so check it oh, out if you haven't seen it. I must check that. I do like uh... – Johnny Knoxville. Well, it's it's his favorite. It's my favorite film of his by far. And it was it was one of those things. Most of the complaints about it, they all came out before the film being released. All the people complaining about it hadn't seen it. Well, that's the problem with it. Yeah, everyone everyone was up in arms about the movie. Didn't had never had a chance of succeeding because people were all saying it's this is terrible. How can you do this? But it, it you know never ever does it make fun of the people you know that it's that it's about. It 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 embraces them and it presents them as real people. And I think that it just you know, it's got a bad rap. And that's that's that happens a lot when the PC police get up in arms. But um, it's yeah. if if you don't if the if the concept doesn't offend you, check out the movie. You will laugh and you will laugh a lot. Okay, my number four. Uh, it's another comic book adaptation. This one is Sin City, based on Frank Miller's Sin City, written, produced, and directed by Frank Miller and Robert Rodriguez. And I think it's uh, it's one of the the best comic book adaptations there's been because I remember the first time watching it at home, uh, I had a couple of friends over, and we were looking, we had the graphic novel open going through, and it's not just the, the script, but it's the, the way it looks. It's, it's like taking, they took the comic, put it on a big screen, and it's got the great cl- cast of Bruce Willis, Mickey Rourke as Marv, which was inspired casting. I didn't think it was going to work when I heard about it, but he was brilliant. Clive Owen, Jessica Alba, Benicio Del Toro, Brittany Murphy, and Elijah Wood as scary as as everything. And um, we got Alexis Bledel, Michael Clark Duncan, Rosario Dawson, Carlo Gugino, Rutger Howard, Jamie King, Michael Mads. It just, what a cast. And I loved it. I thought they did a really good job. I was so disappointed with the sequel, but the, the first one, Sin City, was a cracking movie. Now, see, here's what's interesting. Yeah. So I uh, think it's an, an amazing adaptation of the comic books. I think it, it it's one of the most faithful comic book adaptations I've yeah, ever yeah, seen yeah. in my life. I didn't really like it very much. And I, I oh, it's okay. one of those movies. We just talked about this last week. I don't know why. I can't put my finger on what it is about it yeah, yeah. that I didn't enjoy. Um, so do you like the comics? I love the comics. One of my favorites yeah, of all yeah. time. Oh, that's, uh, that's surprising then, yeah. Uh, I, for some reason, I just didn't dig it. I did, however, enjoy the sequel. Uh, maybe because my, my expectations were so low. I don't know. I actually yeah, really like the sequel. Yeah. So I, I actually have Sin City, the first one in my pile, to go back to. Now that I saw the sequel and I liked it, I kind of feel like, well, maybe if I revisit it, because I haven't seen it in a long time. But I do remember just being very turned off by it the first time I saw it. And I still, to this day, can't figure out why that is. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah. We- we could maybe do that as a list, future ones, films we don't like, but we're not sure yeah, why. Exactly. Yeah. That would be number one on mine. So, But yeah. good choice, good choice. I can totally understand okay. why it's on there. All right, well, my number four, uh, continuing with my trend of underseen movies, is a film called Joyeux Noël. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. For any of our French-speaking listeners, it is the English translation is called is, is Joy to the World. Um, and it is 
an utterly amazing film. It's in three languages, English, French, and German, I believe. And it is about the true story of the uh, Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, I forget which, um, uh, ceasefire in World War One. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Where American and German troops and maybe French troops, I, the details escape me at the moment, but they all basically, uh, on Christmas, they all stop fighting and they come out and they play soccer and they swap stories about their lives. And then, you know, they have like this, this kind of shared night of festivities. And then the next day they go back to being mortal enemies and trying to kill each other again. And um, I found it to be a profoundly moving, uh, really amazing film. Um, just great performances across the board, mostly unknown actors here in the U.S. Uh, and, and it's a film that, you know, I don't think more than a handful of people have ever seen. Um, and I've anytime I talk about Christmas movies or, you know, I, I bring the movie up whenever I get a chance and I always champion it. And I still think I'm the only person I know who's actually seen it. But it is really worth tracking down. It's a terrific, terrific film. Yeah, I've not seen. It. I know the I know the film and I know the events it's based on, but uh, yeah, I've not seen that. So, gosh, you've uh, given me an awful lot to add to my I'm, list. I'm of telling you, man, watch. there's some really good ones yeah. on here that you should track down. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, well, my number three is a film by Shane Black called Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, starring uh, a guy you might have heard of, Robert Downey Jr., and also stars Val Kilmer. My second favourite Val Kilmer role, first one was in Willow, and also stars Michelle Monaghan and Corbin Burnson. It's a great, if you've seen, well, Shane Black, he also directed uh, Iron Man 3 and the recent uh, the recent film, The Nice Guys. This one is another one of his. It's set set in LA. It's set at Christmas. Big surprise for a Shane Black film. Uh, but it's it's very funny. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a comedy noir film uh, with great performances. A twisted, a twisted convoluted plot. Where you never like all the best noirs, they should be like that. Where you're never quite sure exactly who's done what and why they're doing what they're doing, but it all makes sense in the end. All right. Well, my number three, uh, finally a movie some people have seen, and it is <laughs> Batman Begins. Uh, one of my favorite superhero movies of all. Probably would have come in at number one, I think, if it weren't for the sequels, which were, in my opinion, a series of diminishing returns. But uh, I do love the first one very much. I think it was kind of neat how they made this giant, big blockbuster Batman movie that was also an art house film. Yeah, yeah. But I do think Christopher Nolan did a great job of reimagining the Batman films. Uh, you know, Christian Bale wasn't in entirely too ridiculous with his Batman voice yet at that point. And uh, I just really like it. I think it's a great <laughs> film. It looks fantastic. Obviously, it launched the, a franchise that people have embraced and loved. And I think it really brought Christopher Nolan to the forefront. So that's uh, my number three. Well, it's a good pick because my number two is Batman Begins. All right. Yeah. And as you say, it was a great take on Batman. It was good to see a proper origin Story to see, you know, because lots of people know Batman, but they didn't really know what Bruce Wayne went through to become the Batman. Right. It was nice seeing that, uh, and I would have loved it if they could have carried on the film, you know, in the sequels. I liked, I liked the Dark Knight up to a point. It's like the last, the last third just seems too tacked on. The last third should have been the third movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Mm -hmm. That should have been yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. And the, the Dark Knight Rises was such a disappointment, but yeah, Batman Begins was a, a cracking way of revamping. Batman and bringing him back to his comic book roots. Right, exactly. Yeah, and that was my number two. Very good. Well, we're pretty close on that. Only one, one. Apart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, my number two is uh, probably not a big surprise to most people who are genre fans. It is Serenity, and that is, of course, the film based on the popular but canceled TV show Firefly, starring Nathan yeah, Fillion gone, and Alan Tudyk. Um, and a bunch of other great people. Uh, I love Firefly, and I thought Serenity was a really great way to, um, you know, bring the franchise to the 
big screen and I think knowingly also wrap it up. I, I think Joss Whedon was smart enough to realize that chances were good the movie wasn't going to become such a big hit that it would launch a whole new series of films. So he he wisely made it a standalone movie that you know was open for sequels but told the story it needed to tell and kind of gave everyone some closure after the series was canceled. So um, I, I know Firefly fans, of course, love this movie. Uh, I think it's just absolutely brilliant. And I think it's good enough that you can watch it having never seen Firefly before and still uh, still enjoy it quite a bit. So that's my number two. Yeah, I'm like a leaf in the wind. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yes, and Serenity, I loved it, and it's my number one. I had a feeling it might be. Yes, yeah, because uh, Firefly is such a good show cancelled much too early it's always fun though you know somebody's watched the first season don't know much about it if you say oh just wait till you see the second season just one <laughs> but uh, no, as you as you said serenity was a great way of wrapping it up but also it was almost as you said to start it gives a good throws you in if you've never seen the, the series but it had always had great characters great cast it was good seeing lots of the reavers uh i would have loved to have seen more but as you say it was a good ending, even though we lost some great characters. Right. Yeah, I mean, so, I, would yes. have, I would have loved to have seen more, but I, you know, I, I'm glad that it, it didn't leave things hanging for us, you know? Yeah, because that would have been even worse. Again, after, after the series leaving us hanging and to have the film leaving us hanging, you'd be going, oh, my God. Right, exactly. exactly. But there's still, so, there's still so many unanswered questions I wanted to know. But oh, sure, sure, of course. We'll never know. Well, they've answered, some of them are answered in the comics, but right. you wanted to see it on TV. Exactly. I think if, it, I think if the show had come out, because it was like 2002, wasn't it? I think if it came out like five, ten years after that, yeah, it would have done. It would still be going now. I, I agree. I think I think it, it would thrive in today's television market. I think it was yeah. just a little bit ahead of its time. Yeah, a little but, bit too early, wasn't it? Yep. What are you gonna do? Okay, so what if, what's your number one then if it's not Serenity? All right, well, so interesting because my number three and your number two were the same, Batman Begins. Mm. My number two and your number one were the same, Serenity. But I threw a wrench in the works by by picking a different number one movie. Oh. And it is The Descent. Oh, yeah, yeah. Directed yes. by Neil Marshall, um, who directed some, some really great movies, including Dog Soldiers, which is a favorite of both of ours. And uh, he's now a big, uh, big-time big director on Game of Thrones. But The Descent is one of my favorite horror movies of the, the, past, of the past 20 years. Um, it's absolutely insanely intense. And basically it follows this group of women out on an adventure to go spelunking into these caves and they get lost and they come across these subterranean creatures uh, who, you know, start to kill yeah, them yeah. Uh, one by one. And and what what's fascinating to me about the movie, what makes it so, so great is it's a good 40 minutes or so into the film before you even see a single creature. And by that point, you're before you even see a single creature, you're already ready to jump out of your skin from the tension because yeah. the cave stuff is so dangerous. And there's like this cave in scene and it's so like claustrophobic that you're already like, Oh my God, I just want them out of these caves. And then these giant creature things show up that are like subterranean humans. And then it's like, oh my God, this just kicked into overdrive. And it is just, it is crazy. And I love it. I love it. I think it's, there's just, when they first reveal the creatures, it is one of the scariest moments. Like the way it's done is so scary and so intense. And um, it's really just an amazing film uh, that uh, I, I just I think it's amazing. I love it. It's it's great, and I think any any good uh, any horror fan should enjoy it. And even if you're not a horror fan, it's good enough that I think you'll enjoy it. So yeah, it's it's an excellent film. It's just outside my top ten, right? Uh, but uh, I think it was too claustrophobic for me. <laughs> it, it's I, yeah, 
Because yeah. you don't need the uh, the creatures in it because it's they just add the, the action on the cake. That's what I love so much creatures. about it. It's almost like two different yeah. movies. The first half is like almost like a disaster film, you know, yeah. where there's this cave and they're trapped and they're lost and you know they're they have no map and all this and you're like, oh my god, what's going to happen? And then all of a sudden it's like, oh by the way, <laughs> your day is about to get worse. The ending is a gut punch as well. Well, it depends which which ending you've seen. Yeah. yeah. Well, it depends. Yeah. Uh, luckily, the home video the home video release fixed it. The American theatrical version butchered the ending um, yeah. and made it kind of a happier ending than the original British version. But luckily, the uh, the the home video version has, I believe, both endings. So the original ending is definitely the better one. Excellent. An excellent choice. An excellent list. Thank you. Likewise. Yeah. Lots of things for me to watch there, which I haven't seen. Yeah. Yeah. Dig in. But uh, I'll go. I'm going to go with the uh, the 2005 worldwide top ten. Yes, films sure. I'm sure it's very because... different. I know it's different from my list because most of the movies on my list people haven't seen. So, well, I think I think out of the two lists, we had 20 films. Some there was some overlap. We only had one film in the top ten. Okay. Number ten was Hitch, the Will Smith one. Mm-hmm. Number nine, Batman Begins. Okay. Number eight was Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Wow. Seven, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Right. Six, Madagascar. Ugh. Five, King Kong. Four, War of the Worlds. Yeah, I know. Three, The Chronicles of Narnia, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Right. Number two, Star Wars, Episode Three, Revenge of the Sith. Interesting that didn't make either of our lists. I know. Because <laughs> they're yeah, no big yeah. Star Wars fans we are. Yeah, well, it's, it's got. I like the fight at the end. That's yeah, I, right, exactly. Uh, and number one was Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. So that was 2005. Excellent. All right. Well, on that note, then, I think it is time to start to bring this episode to a close. So, Phil, yep. why don't you give people just a, a quick taste of what we're going to be bringing them next week? Uh, so next week, it's going to be – we're going to have a bonus episode. So we're going to have the uh, the Quizmaster Deathmatch, which Mike is currently leading at three games to one. Yep. So I'm going to you know, gonna try and beat you. I'm going to beat you this time. Right. We'll see what happens. So it's going to have, a, it's going to have the quiz – and we're going to do a top five as per previous bonus episodes. Yes, it is the return of the bonus episode, just mostly due to some scheduling stuff. But then we will return to our regularly scheduled programming. So we'll fill you in on that uh, at the end of next week's show. All right. Well, on that note, then, uh, once again, as always, we do thank you very much for listening. Uh, if you'd like to help the podcast grow, and it is growing uh, by leaps and bounds, please feel free to leave us a review on iTunes, especially or anywhere that you might listen to the show. Uh, believe it or not, those are a really, really big help in uh, helping other people discover us. So please do that if you can take a few minutes. We'd appreciate it. Tell all your friends about us. And share wherever you can yes all right then as always i am mike spring and i'm phil edwards and we'll see you next week after the ending all right what's going on with your ending now you you, you've gotten it down pat i know (laughs) well it's bound to happen sooner or later wow (laughs) you know you know here's the thing i'll say one of of my best traits is i only mess things up you know 25 30 times before i finally (laughs) get them right so i think that's a pretty good track record yeah that's right brilliant yeah yeah (laughs) god be dreadful playing around a golf with you (laughs) (laughs) exactly 18 holes it's not enough i can't do it (laughs) and as dr strange is in is in the the house yeah can't can't get out (laughs) see what i did there dr strange is in the his house his house and as dr strange is uh in the cosmos that's crap as well what the hell's wrong with me Nicholas throws Christine to the ground, and they narrowly miss. They narrowly miss the hailstorm of. No, they don't miss the bullets. The bullets miss them. <laughs> so how would that work? Not a well structured sentence. Let me do that again. <laughs> there's a pair of doors at the far end of the of the. Bleh. There's a pair of doors at the far end of the hall, not the hall, the <laughs> office. 
There's a pair of doors at the far end of the... Come on, man. Okay. I don't know what happens. <laughs> I'm trying. Damn it. <laughs> Causing them to smash through the doors and into an open room. Uh, hang on a second. Okay. What do you mean, hang on a second? You can't leave it there. <laughs> Sorry. Carter realizes the... Sh Carter realizes that... that the <sighs> He realizes something, but I can't tell you what. <laughs> we haven't got a name for this one, have we? Uh, oh, yeah, we didn't, did we? Crap. How about magical magicians of magic? No, no. no. Uh, <laughs> like, you're not even, like, politely turning me down. You're just like, no, no. Like, God, that's terrible. It didn't, didn't, didn't grab me. Come on. Come on, throw another one at me. Come on. <laughs> All right. How about... Um, no, uh, another one. <laughs> mystical. Mystical, magical. Magical mystery tour? Mystical, magical, mystery, magician... It's mystical. just getting better as you're going. Yeah, mystical, magical, mystery, magicians. <laughs> um, Listen, you know you can't you can't replicate the brilliance of corporate casting climax of crazy, crazy corporate whatever. classic casting cartel of crazy climaxes. That one, yeah. You can't yeah. you can't just you know you can't force those things. They have to come naturally. What about the mighty mystical, magical, mystery magicians? <laughs> <sighs> you almost had it. Almost yeah, this we're missing the last last three words. <laughs> what about mighty mystical magical mystery magicians of film of movies <laughs> all the m's in a say of film and then you're like of film if only yeah. there was another word for films yeah. that started well, with an m begins with m oh dear <laughs> <laughs>